Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily. This is your host, Trevor Hall, in for your Friday long-form episode here on the podcast. Uh, it was rather a quiet week, actually. I was on the road first half of the week and uh, had some personal family matters to attend to. So I apologize for kind of being in and out uh, most of the week, but we'll get back on a better schedule next week, I promise. And also, we'll try to air a uh, MSD Extra uh, on the Substack later uh, today as well on Friday. So i got some things I want to chat about on the Substack uh, for everybody out there. Uh, we've got one interview, long interview with Chris Temple today, all things geopolitical, talking about obviously Ukraine and Russia, the economic ramifications of what's happening there on the commodities trade. Uh, then we must not forget there is debate on economic policy from Federal Reserve President Jerome Powell that happened this week. So we talked to Chris about both sides of the spectrum here. Very important conversation. Special thank you to Integra Resources, Rio 2, Western Copper and Gold, and Arizona Sonoran for your continued support of the podcast. Couldn't do it without you. If you have any follow-up questions for me, please shoot me an email, trevor at clearcreekdigital.com. All right, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Chris. Lengthy chat, but there was a lot to cover. Have a great weekend, everybody. Be well. Happy Friday morning, everybody. Welcome into the long-form episode here on Mining Stock Daily. I'm happy to join uh, by a longtime friend, guest of the show, uh, Mr. Chris Temple of National Investor. Uh, we all know there's some incredible events happening across the world right now, but we also need to not forget there are some very important monetary policy uh, discussions happening uh, within the United States right now as well. So I want to focus on getting the big picture first of events happening in Eastern Europe in regards to Russia invading Ukraine with Chris. And then we're going to continue to spend some time on the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell leading up uh, to the, the meeting here in a couple of weeks where it is expected to have our first rate hike in quite some time. Uh, Chris? My God, man, it's been a week. It's been something else. It's, uh, you know, we, we started the year volatile and then we just doubled that recently with Russia's invasion into Ukraine and everything that goes along with that. I, I think uh, investors are trying to figure out whether to zig or whether to zag. And it makes it difficult if you're trying to navigate your portfolio. You know, one of the things I always try and advise people of Trevor, is that you should consider your portfolio uh, an ocean-going vessel. You don't turn it on a dime. You may need to change a couple degrees here, a couple degrees there. But unless you're in a business of being an aggressive directional trader who's in front of your computer all day long, and I don't think many in our audience are of that ilk. They want good ideas, and they don't want to have to watch their computer all day long. You've, you've got to, you know, maybe adjust your game plan a little bit with what's going on. But uh, I, I think that in more respects than that, 
what is going on in Europe has, I guess, maybe exaggerated a lot of things that were already in place. Uh, the one exception being the cyclical bear market that was starting for stocks that uh, Chairman Powell on Wednesday seemed to, uh, you know, maybe push off a little bit by coming out. And, and essentially, I think when you get right down to it, um, you know, and I think I've used this characterization with you before as well, being Joliet J, as I call him. Inflation is everybody's fault but his. And now he's got even more reasons uh, with what's going on in the world to move very, very slowly. And, and, and he surprised a lot of people when, in his comments to the House Banking Committee on Wednesday, he pretty much promised that, no, there's not going to be a 50 basis point rate hike in two weeks. It'll be 25 and we're going to go gingerly because there's a lot of uncertainty and blah, blah, blah. You know, you're always trying to find some excuse to not act, even though out of the other side of his mouth, he admitted that inflation is worse than it's been in 40 plus years. He misspoke and said 50, um, but in 40 plus years and look, whether he wants to try and be cute with uh, his answers to a couple of the Congress critters, questions or not, the fact is that the buck stops with him. He is first and foremost responsible for this inflation. So that's the general sense of the discussion we are going to have here in this in this, uh, in this this episode, Chris. Uh, so let's start here with Ukraine. Um, and I want to I table the economic uh, reaction and the market reactions for just a couple minutes and kind of somewhat start focusing on the political ramifications of what we're witnessing in Eastern Europe. Uh, let's start with the political ramifications of the United States. And I know everybody is all of a sudden a geopolitical specialist now since, since things happened. And we can say we're doing a good job or a bad job. I honestly don't have much of an opinion about it myself, but I know you have some great deep thoughts of how the United States has reacted to these events. And so give us kind of sense of how you're kind of how you're approaching this. Well, look, first of all, as much as I hate to uh, admit it, uh, it turns out that President Biden was right after all that Vladimir Putin did intend to invade Ukraine, even though Putin until almost the last minute uh, said, no, he's not doing it and even tried to, have a bit of a ruse that he was pulling forces away from there. Look, I, I had uh, this week uh, when I, uh, in my, all my bouncing around South Florida for business, now I'm throttling back down and able to visit with some friends and a few of us had a conversation about this. And, you know, Vladimir Putin is not an idiot. Um, he made a calculated gamble that he would be able to act to in his mind, perhaps, alleviate a gripe that Russia has had building against the West generally and NATO and the U.S. specifically for 30 years. And that is that every U.S. president since George Bush Sr. promised Mikhail Gorbachev that as part of the process of ending the Cold War, dismantling the old Soviet Union and reunifying Germany, 
that NATO would have no further territorial ambitions, nor would it seek to expand. And every president since George Bush Sr. has gone back on that promise. So Putin has got every right to have griped and carped about the encirclement of Russia. Don't forget that this is a people, whether you want to agree with it or not, that has a phobia about this. Whether you want to look at Hitler's invasion after he had, you know, himself allied himself with the Soviet Union for convenience sake, then turned on him, or go back a lot farther to Napoleon and other examples in history. Russia does not want to feel exposed. They've been invaded numerous times. And, um, you know, so I, I think there was a legitimate gripe there. The problem is that of all the things that Putin could have done about this, uh, he has bombed civilian areas, he's invaded large parts of the country, and he's getting himself into every bit of quagmire, uh, as Russia did for many, well, the old Soviet Union did, I should say, for many years in Afghanistan. So it's a mess. He is succeeded in, unfortunately, for, from his standpoint, uh, giving more resolve back to NATO and to the U.S. I would have been one of those who would have hoped that long before this that NATO would have been put on a scrap heap of history, that the U.S. would have extricated itself from that whole part of the world, and that uh, Russia and Germany and France primarily, as the three major powers in Europe, would have been able to craft their future, and I think things would have been a whole lot better had that been the case. But unfortunately, here we are. Do you think so? In general, do you think this these events in the last week have strengthened those ties between NATO and the U.S. Because in the past five, well, actually, probably longer than five years, but it certainly was the talk for politically of trying, like as you mentioned, having the U.S. leave NATO, stop funding it. Do you think? the general consensus of that is re-strengthened with these events? I think by and large it has. You know, until until Russia went in, you had some people in numerous countries in Europe who were pretty vocal, uh, taking Russia's side in this and wanting to see a, a European solution. To me, when someday the history of this time is written, uh, one of the great tragedies will be if it's reported properly, in my view, that the the West had not found a way to long since bring Russia back into the fold of Western nations. Don't forget that you don't have to go back much more than a century. And you had a czar who was a Christian, maybe he was an autocrat, but he was European. He was He was a blood relative of other ruling people in Europe. And you can go back centuries and see how they were all interlinked, Britain and Germany and Russia especially. So the tragedy, I think, Trevor, is that we didn't long ago find a way to do this and have Russia as an ally, strategically, economically, and otherwise, against the real menace on this planet, which is China. Because believe you me, the dislocations we've seen in supply chains, the spikes in oil and uranium and nickel and palladium and platinum and these other things, you multiply that by a hundred. Once China goes in and takes Taiwan, which is inevitable, we will not be able to do anything militarily about that, so we'll do the same thing as we are now with Russia, 
and impose sanctions and bluster and things like that. But the economic price to pay when China retaliates in those ways is going to be far beyond anything we're seeing so far. And all of these things, I think, Trevor, are going to combine to teach us anew the lesson that the U.S. should have stuck all along with the Monroe Doctrine and worry about our own backyard, our own security, and we're going to begin to find out the hard way more and more. And we've only seen the beginning, the Monroe Doctrine and nationalism when it comes to what we need to run a modern economy because we are completely exposed on so many fronts um, when it comes to what we import from Asia, from, from even Russia. I didn't realize until this started, and I was listening to a news report, that 80% of all of the uh, palm oil and, and, and some other oils in the world that go into all manner of food and even cosmetic products come from Russia and or Ukraine. Right. So it's funny you mentioned that because uh, this week when I was in Salt Lake City, I was giving a talk um, in one of the sessions. And I actually, the night before, completely scrapped what I was originally going to talk about and really wanted to focus on a lot of what we're discussing here. But part of that discussion was, okay, what has been literally shut off the supply chain in the last week from these two countries? So I, and there, there, I had a lengthy rundown of data here, so I don't want to go all into it, but here's just a glimpse. And let me just start just with Russia. They control about 2% of the world's bauxite and produce 6% of the aluminum. They control 26.4% of the global gem diamond production and 30% of the industrial-grade diamonds. They're the third largest gold producer in the world the fifth largest of, and the fifth largest gold reserves holder. They, uh, they may hold as much as 30% of the world's iron, and Russia holds the number one spot for the world's gas reserves and, to the, and the world's second largest producer of natural gas, second only to the U.S. And, you know, that's obviously been hitting news for quite some time. Uh, it keeps going. Uh, oil and gas counted for 52.9% of Russian exports a few years ago. Uh, they produce 9% of the world's nickel, 40% of the world's palladium, 4% of the world's cobalt. They produce 5% of the world's total uranium and may control about 9% of global uranium reserves. We haven't even talked about Ukraine. So right. they, they, they have a lot of metal as well, but they also have a lot of ag. They are the fourth biggest maker of potatoes. The fifth biggest producer of rye, eighth largest grower of wheat, ninth biggest producer of chicken eggs, um, first in the world for sunflower and sunflower oil exports, uh, second largest producer of barley. They I, and somewhere in here, um, they they have a the largest ar arable land in in Europe. They hold like the most excuse me the most of it of arable land in Europe. I mean, Ukraine's a massive country. My point in all that is, like, those data points alone, despite what's happened, is are extraordinary. But because of these events, you have shut those off, all with the exception of maybe Russian oil. That's another discussion. But those are off. Th th those are done, and you can shut them off quickly. But to bring them back on, it will take weeks, months years even if a peace deal were happen tomorrow 
Well, that's right. And and one of the things, you know, I was in my car on and off on Wednesday morning when uh, Powell, the Fed chairman, was in front of the House Banking Committee. And I so I was getting bits and pieces of this and got to read a rundown later. But I, I did catch one of the members of the House asking him about his views of how all of this is going to substantially worsen inflation and what he intends to do about it or could do about it and and what this guy was was focusing on was food because before any of this happened you already have a developing food crisis and some shortages all throughout Europe because natural gas whose prices soared in Europe is a major input cost into fertilizers. I did a radio show a couple of weeks ago where we had a caller call in who's a farmer in the state of Wisconsin, even here. And his less bad rendition of his costs were that, and a lot of these farmers, of course, have to budget everything based on one chunk of money that they have to lay out in the, ahead of the spring planning season. They get all their supplies and so forth. They do it many different ways. And this guy told us that last year, his nut, if you will, for his initial expenses to get ready for the season was 220000 This year's 390 his expenses for planning. And it is much, much worse in Europe where you've already had some farmers bite the dust because they cannot afford these costs. They cannot afford to pass, or it's impossible for them to pass on the magnitude of price increases because they wouldn't stick. So you've already got this going on, and, and now we've added, God only knows how much to this whole equation where you're going to have massive food shortages. Uh, the world over. Some of that will be felt here. In, in the U.S. it's going to be less bad than in Europe, but we will still be susceptible to this. You know, one of my favorite restaurants in St. Augustine, Florida, where I live, I hadn't been in there four or five months, I think it's been, or maybe not quite that long. I think it was back during the Christmas holiday at some point. I went in there just a week or so ago, and their menu had been cut by two-thirds. Hmm. Uh, and they just cut it down to those types of things that they knew they weren't going to have trouble with supplies on. But in a number of different areas, they, they just weren't getting what they thought they needed. And, and that's not the first time I'd seen it, even though it was the most extreme example. So, and, this, and, and, and I'm talking Florida, where relative to the rest of the country, you've got fresh food just about 12 months out of the year of, of most kinds. So yes, we, we are going into a time that we're going to have to learn to live a little bit more uh, lean. We're going to get to distinguish more than we have in a while between needs and wants. And again, as I alluded to earlier, uh, heaven help us if uh, China decides that, well, it's our turn. And we get into a tit-for-tat game of sanctions over them taking Taiwan, which is going to add beyond the, the resources and agriculture, all the, all, all the chips, everything that we, well, we all know what we import from China, which are near everything. Um, 
Muhammad al Aryan had had this incredible uh, quote about how the Federal Reserve has changed the dynamics of the U.S. economy from one of insufficient demand to now one of insufficient supply. So with keeping that in the back of your mind, we knew that that commodities trade was a solid trade on the backs of the fiscal reaction to the COVID pandemic. Right. But with this, I would argue the commodities trade was still strong, but my goodness, we are getting an incredible second leg to this price inflation, specifically in commodities, anywhere from energy to ag. Uh, I mean, it really feels like this thing's going to play out a lot longer than people maybe originally thought it was. What's your thoughts with that idea? Well, theoretically it would, but here's the problem, Trevor, that I see with that, and I'm trying to get my own head around this. There's an old saying of you know what happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object the irresistible force on the commodities subject is that yes we already have shortages because of policy because of supply chains and so forth you know powell and and uh, joe biden the state of the union address want to blame all these rising prices on supply chain disruptions because of the pandemic well that's a very small part of it all uh, the Fed is by far the biggest part of it, um, and but also policy, where you've had a number of things done to restrict the production of all of these things that we're short of. So it's not just supply chain, it's policy decisions in the first place. No, you can't mine uh, the battery metals we need at Twin Metals, Minnesota. Yes, we are going to shut down Polymet's uh, move toward development for God knows how many more years longer. We'll throw more more monkey wrenches in. Yes, Biden's interior secretary is itching to shut down the white mesa mill of energy fuels, which is the only mill in this country that can mine conventional uranium and rare earths and is already doing the latter when we need to fill in our own supply chain of that. Uh, Yes, the Biden administration is going to cast a new shadow over the resolution copper mine in Arizona, which is one of the largest uh, development stage copper deposits in the world. And this, while the president was telling us in the State of the Union address that one of the things we need to do to respond to this is to have everything made in America at the same time, he's killing it, you know, when it comes to a lot of these things. So yeah, we've we've got a mess. So you've got all of those things in play. And you've got two other dynamics, Trevor. First of all, the Fed, which is making it far worse by printing all the money that it's done. You know, history has shown that the biggest reason for the oil price spike in the 70s was not the Arab oil embargo. It was the Federal Reserve's response to the oil embargo that made that oil price spike far worse than it would have been. And the excuse that Arthur Burns used back then, who was the Fed chairman appointed by Nixon, was the same that we're hearing today from Powell. Oh, I can't raise rates too quickly because there's already been a shock to the economy from the Arab oil embargo. So I'm going to let inflation run 
I'm not going to raise interest rates up. All he did was enable an even larger rise in oil. And on its face, it's a stupid position. Because it doesn't matter what you do with monetary policy. They've already told you you're not getting the oil until something happens that has nothing to do with monetary policy, changes that. Mm -hmm. So all you've done as Fed Chairman, Mr. Burns, is increase the number of dollars and therefore raise the price of oil more than it was going to be raised anyway. And this nincompoop that we have today has done this exponentially worse than what Burns did and doesn't have the sense or thinks we're all so stupid is to listen to this and say, look, all right, well, let me, let me, let's, let's just think about this rationally. If supply chains are shut down and you're not going to get these goods, no matter what happens, no matter the price, then don't make it worse by raising the price by printing more money. Because now you've raised these prices and made all these shortages worse for people who've got to pay the, the, the bills for these things. So in the past, there have been a couple instances where the of all of the different things you can blame, the different moving parts, a recession was caused first and foremost by a spike in energy, which apart from labor is the single biggest input to overall inflation. And this idiot has made it worse. Now, you can look you can point to the president as well saying that he should have had us prepared for this. We don't need to hear this nonsense. Oh, well, we all need to bear pain for Ukraine. Okay, well, when the economy crashes, we'll see how people think about that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and this business the other day, and I've got to throw this in, you know, they released 60 million barrels. You know, everybody gets together, 30 countries, they release 60 million barrels to help out. That's two-thirds of one day's oil consumption. Yeah. Brian Outlaw. It's actually, it's it's much more bullish than I think people yeah. understand. Because well, it, it happened last, I can't remember, was it two or three months ago they released uh, barrels from uh, Strategic yeah. Petroleum Reserve. And I mean, I think the price went down, what, 50 cents a barrel for a, half a day? And then went, it, it's, it it's was really quick. It's a gimmick, just like the idea they may still do it of, you know, declaring a federal tax holiday on the, the, the federal tax part of a gallon of gasoline. It's a gimmick. It doesn't solve the problem. Right. Well, at the same time, we're, we continue to produce, I think the last stat I saw, it's actually this morning, we're still producing 10% less oil here in the United States than we did prior to COVID. Yeah. Well, see, and, and here again, Trevor, this was going to happen anyway. A lot of people have pointed out that there's been a, uh, you know, this, this production has not been able to come back nearly as fast. Uh, before we kind of move on to, to a little bit more of, I, I do want to talk about interest rate hikes, but before we do that, I do want to get your general sense to these sanctions that, uh, the U.S. and Europeans are placing on Russia. Uh, it's cert I mean, you see the playbook. It's obvious what they're trying to do is they're trying to make life for the typical Russian citizen it's very, very difficult. I saw reports of literally people trying to get on trains and subways that go try to pay with, the, with their phone. 
they couldn't pay for their transportation that morning. Uh, reeking, like, you know, people are just, when the routines gets, are in flux, people get really frustrated. So you can kind of see it from what I, from what I can point out is there, sanctions are trying to make life so difficult for the average Russian that they're thinking this could be enough reason for Putin to kind of backtrack. Putin doesn't give two dams about the average citizen in Russia. I think that's pretty obvious from what we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years. Do you think these sanctions are going to be effective? Not immediately, no. I mean, it's been well reported, the level of foreign exchange reserves that Russia has. Uh, I'm sure they've got a lot of different contingency plans for having Russian institutions incrementally being booted out of the SWIFT payments and, and, and reporting system, et cetera. Uh, so I think, I think you're right. Um, and this, again, is why the tragedy is that we allowed things to fester this far, both sides, frankly. We shouldn't be at a place like this because Europe, of course, I mean, I, I had the idea of uh, Chancellor Schultz in Germany you know, with a gun to his own head, saying to Vladimir Putin, behave yourself or he gets it. Okay, Europe's already got an energy crisis, Germany worse than most of them, and all of this stuff is making it far worse. So y you wonder if at some level this isn't uh, in somebody's playbook back buried someplace that the average person doesn't see or hear of. It's a wonderful, I wrote this months ago, that as we get out of the whole COVID thing and start coming back to normal, there's got to be another bogeyman to blame inflation and everything on, right? <laughs> so we, had a, we, had, we had a two-week break for the Olympics, and then it was back Pretty to much. crisis. <laughs> yeah. So, so now we've got the new bogeyman. So now, instead of Jerome Powell being responsible for inflation, Vladimir Putin is responsible for inflation, high gas prices, the common cold, and everything else. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's do transition. I do. I'm chomping at the bit to ask you about these imminent rate rate hikes from the Federal Reserve. Uh, two weeks ago, you could have made the argument that maybe there would be a 50 basis point rate hike in March. Uh, I don't think you can argue that now with events that are happening in Eastern Europe. I think that 50% hike is off the table. Unless something happens that, you know, Jerome's hands are completely tied and has to do something like that. It, it yeah. sounds like he's backing a 25 now. Yeah, for him to come out and say that today, he knows he's got the majority of the other voting members with him on that. He wouldn't have said that if he, if there was half or close to half that want a 50 basis point hike, because I think a few of them do. They've made it very clear. But look, um, before this whole Russian invasion of Ukraine, I thought that there was a, at least an even chance or better that the initial rate hike would be 50 basis points. Uh, it was basically a freebie for the Fed had it chosen to do that because people were talking about it. I think it would have been wise for the Fed to do that. It still would be, honestly, because it would start to re recoup for them at least a little bit of their completely shot credibility when it comes to fighting inflation. Instead, what we heard from Powell is that the Fed is still going to be timid and you know he, he's going to let inflation run even hotter. 
And as I said earlier in my historical example of Arthur Burns, the only thing the Fed does by staying behind the rapid acceleration of inflation is guarantee that inflation will get that much worse and raise the odds that that we're gonna we're, we will not have a soft landing but we will have a major bust caused by such an explosion in energy prices that it collapses everything or the market at some point finally forces the fed's hand and the bond market vigilantes which they're here one minute and gone the next they finally say hey we, we've drank enough of this kool-aid this guy is full of more crap than a christmas goose and he's destroying the currency yeah. so one or the other of those things happen yeah so the, it was interesting as i noticed that as soon as there was a high probability of interest rate hikes this spring the market was actually pricing in the first rate cut into 2024 <laughs> which gave me a nice chuckle but it really goes to show you the market sniff sniffing this out pretty dang quickly because they just know how how in trouble this central bank really is and how our economy is just it's it it lives and dies by their every word we saw it we saw it this week as jerome powell was talking in front of congress right oh for sure i mean and that's that's added to the volatility look at the move on Wednesday when he when he came out and promised that no it's going to be 25 not 50 everybody thought you know happy days are here again the champagne corks are popping and and great you know um we will we'll never in our lifetime see positive real interest rates again um and as I said a minute ago I think that what Powell is rapidly increasing the risk of is a major bust uh, because I, I, I quipped a few minutes ago, what happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object? Well, the irresistible force is all of those reasons why commodities are in short supply, going higher in price, and will continue for a while. There's no question about that. But when do they meet that immovable object of businesses and consumers that just say, stop, enough? Because the old saying with runaway commodity prices, is that high prices cure high prices. All of a sudden, demand will collapse. And that's one of the things I think that even though they're clueless seemingly near term, maybe the bond market knows is a little smarter than I give them credit for sometimes in looking ahead to see when, after however many rate hikes there might be a rate cut, is that they smell the same thing coming, that, that the economy just cannot withstand these increases in costs forever. Well, that also lies the question of if we have over-the-top demand from this fiscal response the last couple of years, you know, where does that, where does those higher prices break that demand? Because we're not seeing it now. You know, it, no, it, that, yeah. it, it's so, really, it's a really fascinating, where that, where the connection makes, you know, where that hits and actually changes the fundamental system, I, I think we're a ways we're a ways from it. Well, we probably are because the Fed did so front load everything with all of its money printing. Keep in mind that in two years, since the start of the whole COVID thing, something like 30% of all of the dollars ever created were brought into existence just in the last two years. Yeah. So there is a, a, there are obscene amounts of liquidity out there. 
And you're right. You know, you're not going to have necessarily a collapse tomorrow or next week or next month in economic activity. But, you know, just start looking around to see what Main Street is telling you. Now, I've been uh, bouncing around Southern Florida the last several days, a bunch of, you know, a couple of different conferences. Uh, John Duty, his gold stock analyst, Investor Day, the BMO conference. I got to see a couple people on the outside of that, uh, other individual meetings and, and so forth. And I'll tell you what, the highways are still jam-packed full. When you're sitting on the, on the dock having a cocktail on the intercoastal, there's still all kinds of boat traffic and everything. Now, granted, that's not middle America necessarily. I'm not trying to say it is. But, you know, just, just put your finger on the, the pulse, folks, of your own local economy and see, you know, how, how are people doing? Do you see in your daily activity businesses pulling in their horns? Are they closing an extra day a week? You know, what, whatever kind of thing might be. We have already seen with new mortgage applications that a 30-year conventional mortgage moving from a bit under 3% to now a bit over 4% has put a, a noticeable dent in housing demand in the housing market, but not across the board. Mm -hmm. Here again, I'll use Florida as an example. Down here, you've still got cash buyers, you know, lined up around the block at realtors' offices, you know. And again, that's not that's not all of America, but in a lot of areas, that's what you've got. So, in a long rambling answer to your point, Trevor, no, we're not going to see this climax come immediately because there is still so much liquidity. But when it comes, are those who have said that 2000 and 2008 were nothing compared to the kind of bust from a far bigger bubble of all kinds that we've got right now. Maybe they're going to be proven right. We'll see. Uh, let's kind of finish up here with some ideas of, you know, what you can do with capital, put it to work. It's kind of interesting because I don't feel like there's a whole lot of new ideas. Uh, the conversations you and I have had over the last two years, uh, you know, those ideas really haven't changed. In fact, they've probably been strengthened in the last week, <laughs> in all honesty. Um, but, you know, the commodities trade seems strong. Agriculture seems like there's a lot of upwards possibility there. Like, is there still room to kind of get into ag if you, if, if you don't have exposure there? Uh, and, you know, obviously we'll talk about gold a little bit, but the go gold looks really healthy again. You know what? Gold, uh, as you know, because you read my stuff uh, several months ago, I went to Sector Bullish on gold again because I believed that a lot of the stuff that had made money in the last year was going to come into some question, mostly the stock market, the MEM stocks, and Bitcoin and things like that. So gold is benefiting, not, not so much from the uncertainty and everything, though it is a risk-off asset in that regard, but especially since... The, the continuing massive inflation that the Fed has stoked is, has less places to go now. So more people are going to get turned on to gold. And I think, you know, going forward, um, I, I don't see a bearish scenario, quite honestly, for gold. Ironically, the one thing that would have hurt gold badly, but it would have been transitory, to use <laughs> his favorite term, would be if Jerome Powell did accede to a 50 basis point rate hike starting out and shown that the Fed was going to get serious about inflation. That would have hammered gold if, if that came. 
but it wouldn't have lasted long. I mean, you'd see gold drop 100 or 150 bucks, it'd last a couple of weeks, and then it would have gone right back up. So now we don't even apparently don't even have to worry about that. But yeah, all of the all of the commodities. I'll tell you, I like a lot of the um, yield plays in commodities. Uh, BHP is a Cadillac. Uh, Sabanye Stillwater is a Cadillac with a big yield in the in the platinum group space. Uh, a lot of the pipelines I, I added back a while ago, and they've all done well. Everything from Chenier Energy Partners, the, now that LNG exports are a big deal, Energy Transfer is probably the best value among all of the pipeline companies. Enter, Enterprise Products Partners, I added that one back. So there's a lot of good places to go without taking a great deal of risk in a lot of the good yield plays across the commodity spectrum. Gold is, is great also. Uh, I continue right now to favor either the leveraged gold bullion ETF or the best exploration plays you come up with. The, the majors have still been laggards. They've still been underperformers. Now, that'll change. They'll catch up when generalist investors see the gold price exceed its all-time high from a year ago last summer then they'll pile in and then it doesn't matter what you're talking about with gold it'll probably go up um uranium has caught uh, a, a fresh tailwind because of what's going on with russia and ukraine so after lollygagging for quite a while and a long consolidation uh, uranium and uranium stocks have been on fire i think those are no-brainers going forward and i think a big thing that if, if there was any wisdom and farsightedness in Washington generally and with the Biden administration specifically, you would see the president, instead of giving us a line of nonsense that he did in so many ways the other night, you'd have seen him come out and admit, you know what, maybe we need to move a little faster with some of these projects. Maybe we shouldn't have been so hasty just for the sake of doing it to think we have anything Donald Trump did that we didn't like we're just going to reverse it and 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 worry about the consequences later like twin metals like the northmet project like resolution like what they've done uh with with the bears ears monument and that threatening a, a very strategic uh national uranium asset and more uh in in that in utah so uh i think that the best thing they could do would be to come out and say, look, we are now on a war footing. This is a this is a matter of our economic survival. And you know what? We got to push the environmentalist wackos to one side, put the adults back in charge, and have a crash course war footing type of program to, all right, if we're going to be independent of these countries, let's not talk about it. Let's get serious and do it. Uh, Chris? Uh, we should we'll touch base again here in the spring because it's going to be a wild ride here, the next few. It weeks. is. It is. I mean, God only knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks. <laughs> uh, tomorrow, who knows? Tomorrow. It, it, I mean, that's. I almost forget what day of the week it is anymore because the news yeah. has just been so much lately. And watching market reaction, uh, you, it, 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 you know, for people like us that watch markets and watch reactions, whether it be because of the Federal Reserve and what they're saying, or because of conflicts in Europe, um, 
you know, I, I, I do hope a lot more people are paying attention to this, these types of conversations, because uh, they're going to have a little bit of a so- softer landing than people who aren't, which is yeah. kind of a terrible thing to think about, but it's the truth. Uh, Chris Temple from the National Investor, nationalinvestor.com. I uh, really appreciate your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend, my friend, and uh, let's touch base here in the next few weeks. Anytime. Take care. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.